The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So we're back with another two-part episode. And if you would rather skip the poetry and hear from Edith Wharton and Helen Keller about how they both discovered words in their very own and very different ways, Check the post description and it will give you a timestamp of when that second part begins. And also, uh, I figured it was high time to do this just to see what happens. But at the top of each post description from now on, there will be a link to support this podcast if you feel inclined to do so. And if you are, thank you indeed very much. Already, this podcast has become more than I ever really could have imagined that it would be. And I wanted to continue tonight with the series of uh, anthology segments of reading one poem, basically from uh, one poem from the last five centuries, beginning with the 20th century. And the first poem I'm going to read tonight is also the first poem I've read here at all from the American poet Robert Lowell, who was born in 1917 and I believe died in 1977. This isn't the first time I've read something from Lowell, however, and I'll use this as a good excuse to read one of my favorite quotations about poetry which came from Robert Lowell in 1961, which means that this quotation is now 60 years old, when he was interviewed by the Paris Review in 1961. Um, he had this to say, and what I'm doing here is um, I'm reading a longer version of the quotation that I usually read from Lowell, just to give a little bit more context, and I think that definitely helps what he says. He says that I seesaw back and forth between something highly metrical and something highly free. There isn't any one way to write. But it seems to me that we've gotten into a sort of Alexandrian age. Poets of my generation, and particularly younger ones, have gotten terribly proficient at these forms. They write a very musical, difficult poem with tremendous skill. Perhaps there's never been such skill. Yet the writing seems divorced from culture somehow. It's become too much something specialized that can't handle much experience. It's become a craft, purely a craft, and there must be some breakthrough back into life. And now I will read that part again, because that is usually the only part that I 
quote from, and it is so wonderful. It says, Poets of my generation, and particularly younger ones, have gotten terribly proficient at these forms. They write a very musical, difficult poem with tremendous skill. Perhaps there's never been such skill. Yet the writing seems divorced from culture somehow. It's become too much something specialized that can't handle much experience. It's become a craft, purely a craft. And there must be some breakthrough back into life. Prose is in many ways better off than poetry. It's quite hard to think of a young poet who has the vitality, say, of Salinger or Saul Bellow. Yet prose tends to be very diffuse. The novel is really a much more difficult form than it seems, and isn't he saying it? Uh, few people have the wind to write anything that long. Even a short story demands almost poetic perfection. Yet on the whole, prose is less cut off from life than poetry is. Now, some of this Alexandrian poetry is very brilliant. You would not have it changed at all. But I thought it was getting increasingly stifling. I couldn't get my experiences into tight, metrical forms. And then the interviewer says, So you felt this about your own poetry, your own technique, not just about the general condition of poetry. And Lowell says, Yes, I felt that the meter plastered difficulties and mannerisms on what I was trying to say to such an extent that it terribly hampered me. And this is wonderful because I think it cuts through the uh, strict demarcations that sometimes seem to exist between the poet who believes that there, it all must be free and that rhyme and meter or just meter uh, is like uh, wearing handcuffs, or the person on the other side who says only a good poem, uh, only a metrical poem can be a good poem. Very often our theoretical bents uh, don't last in practice, and I think someone like Lowell, who uh, someone as prolific as Lowell, knows what he's talking about. Um, it's not either or, it's and. And sometimes for years you stick with one side, and sometimes for years you stick with the other. And I would have to agree. Um, what does he say here? Uh, yet on the whole, um, it's extremely stifling. Uh, uh, prose is less cut off, cut off from life than poetry is. Now it strikes me that if any art form should be in touch with life, it should be poetry. Um, when he says, yet the writing seems divorced from culture somehow, my thought now is that all it is is culture. It's bric-a-brac, it's um, uh, quotations, allusions, references, um, the gobbledygook of academia, the, uh, um, and I mean that with, with all due respect, but um, just the uh, just the phrases of criticism and the uh, the jargon and everything has all now gotten into the poetry. Um, it has only become culture now. It has only become a kind of uh, hidden away 
uh, academic culture or it's just suffused with pop culture. And so that was written, so Lowell said all of that in 1961, and the poem I'm going to read from now comes from, I believe, a book that was published in the late 60s or early 70s, or it may have been both since he, um, let's see what it says, history, uh, 1973. So he wrote a, a, a long, an immensely long collection of poems, almost 200 pages of just poems from history, and I believe they are, yes, all sonnets in the sense that they're 14 lines, uh, spanning all of history, and um, beginning at the beginning and going all the way up to the 1930s where he's using his own life story in the poems. And it seems that he found a way to do what he said he was trying to do. He found a way to tell a story, he found a way to bring himself into it, and he found a way to, um, uh, you might say, keep the poem sort of formal and not entirely loose, but also to make it able to handle the kinds of things that he wanted it to handle. And this is an incredible poem. I've never seen it uh, anthologized anywhere, but it's called Bobby Delano, and it is about someone he knew uh, during his private school youth. This is what it says. The labor to breathe that younger, raw air, St. Mark's last football game with Groton, lost on the ice crust, the sunlight gilding the golden polo coasts, let me start that over again. Bobby Delano. The labor to breathe that younger, rawer air. St. Mark's last football game with Groton, lost on the ice crust. The sunlight gilding the golden polo coats of boys with country seats on the upper Hudson. Why does that stale light stay? First form hazing. First day being sent on errands by an old boy, Bobby Delano, cousin of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Deported, soused off the presidential yacht, baritoning, you're the cream in my coffee. His football, hockey, baseball letter, at fifteen. At fifteen, expelled. He dug my ass with a compass, forced me to say, my mother is a whore. My freshman year... He shot himself in Rio, odious, unknowable, inspired as Ajax. And those last four lines again. He dug my ass with a compass, forced me to say, my mother is a whore. My freshman year, he shot himself in Rio, odious, inspired as Ajax. And Ajax, of course, the figure from... Greek myth who is made to go insane and who kills himself at the end of, I believe it's Euripides' play, Ajax. Um, that is just a wonderful bit of someone's life story that the earlier Robert Lowell, the one where he's all encrusted with forms and, and syllables all over the place and maybe it does fit some sort of um, metrical scheme, but it's all lost under verbiage and sound effects. There are sound effects here, but they are 
natural conversational ones. And it's wonderful to see how Lowell was able to do that. This next poem is from uh, John Clare. And John Clare's dates are, let's see, 1793 to 1864. And this is his poem called An Invite to Eternity. It says, Say, maiden, wilt thou go with me through the valley depths of shade, of night and dark obscurity, where the path hath lost its way, where the sun forgets the day, where there is nor life nor light to see. Sweet maiden, wilt thou go with me? Where stones will turn to flooding streams, where plains will rise like ocean waves, where life will fade like visioned dreams, and mountains darken into caves. Say, maiden, wilt thou go with me? through this sad non-identity, where parents live and are forgot, and sisters live and knowest not. Say, maiden, wilt thou go with me in this strange death of life to be, to live in death and be the same, without this life or home or name, at once to be and not to be, that was and is not, Yet to see things pass like shadows, and the sky above, below, around us lie. The land of shadows wilt thou trace and look, nor know each other's face. The present mixed with reasons gone, and past and present all is one. Say, maiden, can thy life be led to join the living with the dead? Then trace thy footsteps on with me. We're wed to one eternity. And when I say that I want to write rhyming poetry, that is the kind that I mean. The haunting stuff, and you want to be able to hear where the rhyme falls every time. Um, and you can almost hear a setting of that uh, as a song. It's probably happened already. This next poem is from Anna Letitia Barbold, and this is not the usual, at least for me, the usual uh, romantic poet you hear from. And her, her dates are 1743 to 1825. And uh, just looking at her biography at the end of at the end of this book, uh, it says no children, husband committed suicide in 1808. So that might explain uh, some of this. But it's nice to see the uh, see nature and the evening and the seasons being handled uh, without rhyme and seeing just how she does it. This is a poem that was first published in 1773. Let me look at her dates again. So she would have been... Uh, 30 years old, not bad for 30 years old. This is uh, from a poem called A Summer Evening's Meditation. This is what it says. Tis now the hour when contemplation from her sunless haunts 
the cool damp grotto or the lonely depth of unpierced woods, where, wrapped in solid shade, she mused away the gaudy hours of noon, and fed on thoughts unripened by the sun, moves forward, and with radiant finger points to yon blue concave, swelled by breath divine, where, one by one, the living eyes of heaven awake, quick kindling over the face of ether, one boundless blaze, ten thousand trembling fires and dancing lusters, where the unsteady eye, restless and dazzled, wanders unconfined o'er all this field of glories. Spacious field and worthy of the master, he whose hand with hieroglyphics older than the Nile inscribed the mystic tablet hung on high to public gaze and said, Adore, O man, the finger of thy God. From what pure wells of milky light, what soft o'erflowing urn, are all these lamps so filled, these friendly lamps forever streaming over the azure deep, to point our path and light us to our home? How soft they slide along their lucid spheres, and, silent as the foot of time, fulfill their destined courses. Nature's self is hushed, and, but a scattered leaf which rustles through the thick wool foliage, not a sound is heard to break the midnight air, though the raised ear, intensely listening, drinks in every breath. How deep the silence, yet how loud the praise! But are they silent all? Or is there not a tongue in every star that talks with man, and woos him to be wise, nor woos in vain? This dead of midnight is the noon of thought, and wisdom mounts her zenith with the stars. At this still hour of the self-collected soul turns inward, and beholds a stranger there of high descent, and more than mortal rank, an embryo god, a spark of fire divine which must burn on for ages, when the sun fair transitory creature of a day, has closed his golden eye and, wrapped in shades, forgets his wonted journey through the east. Ye citadels of light and seats of gods, perhaps my future home, from whence the soul revolving periods past may oft look back with recollected tenderness on all the various busy scenes she left below, its deep-laid projects and its strange events, as on some fond and doting tale that soothed her infant hours. Oh, be it lawful now to tread the hallowed circle of your courts, and with mute wonder and delighted awe approach your burning confines. Seized in thought, on fancy's wild and roving wing I sail, from the green borders of the peopled earth and the pale moon, her duteous fair attendant, from solitary Mars, from the vast orb of Jupiter, whose huge, gigantic bulk dances in ether like the lightest leaf, to the dim verge, the suburbs of the system, where cheerless Saturn midst her watery moons, girt with a lucid zone, majestic sits in gloomy grandeur, 
like an exiled queen among her weeping handmaids. Fearless thence I launch into the trackless deeps of space, where, burning round, ten thousand suns appear of elder beam, which ask no leave to shine of our terrestrial star, nor borrow light from the proud regent of our scanty day. Sons of the morning, firstborn of creation, and only less than him who marks their track and guides their fiery wheels. Here I must stop, or is there aught beyond? What hand unseen impels me onwards through the glowing orbs of habitable nature, far remote, to the dread confines of eternal night, to solitudes of vast, unpeopled space, the deserts of creation, wide and wild, where embryo systems and unkindled suns sleep in the womb of chaos. Now, to me, that's just incredible. From 1773, that is Anna Letitia Barbold. And I should say that on the very next page of this uh, anthology that I'm reading from is one of the first poems that I read here in the uh, anthology series. And it was by William Cowper, and it was called The Winter Evening. And his poem was published in 1785, only 12 years after A Summer Evening's Meditation. But if you recall what I said there, Cowper's uh, blank verse felt so uh, crowded. It was beautiful. There, it has beautiful moments. But it was so crowded with a sense of a language having reached its... Uh, you think of a, uh, of a balloon that's been blown up too much and you're not really sure to, whether to let it go or to keep blowing air into it. That's the way his poem felt. Um, it was very busy and uh, a, a, not a very controlled music, whereas 12 years earlier you have this utterly natural, strange, uh, and revelatory uh, poem about traveling far, far out into space um, called A Summer Evening's Meditation. And this is well before uh, Wordsworth and what, what, what would it be? Maybe 20 years before Wordsworth and Blake. And you have um, Anna Letitia Barbold doing this wonderful stuff. And the next poem is is from, from 1713, so about 60 years earlier. And this is uh, by Anne Finch, Countess of Winchelsea. And this is a, a poem on sort of the same subject called A Nocturnal Reverie. And if you have a chance, check out Anne Finch, Countess of Winchelsea. Check out her Wikipedia page. She seems to have lived quite a life, and just the image of her that they have, the painted image of her they have, is quite a striking and serious one. There's the story of the Civil War general and editor of The Atlantic, I think, 
who went to visit Emily Dickinson in the 1850s or 1860s and who said something something to the effect of, um, you know, I've been to war and I've been in a room with serious people, but I, I never want to be under the gaze of Emily Dickinson again. Um, you get that sense from Anne Finch. And uh, this is her poem called A Nocturnal Reverie from 1713. In such a night, when every louder wind is to its distant cavern safe confined, and only gentle Zephyr fans his wings, and lonely Philomel, still waking, sings. Or from some tree, famed for the owl's delight, she, hollowing clear, directs the wanderer right. In such a night, when passing clouds give place, or thinly veil the heaven's mysterious face, when in some river overhung with green the waving moon and trembling leaves are seen, when freshened grass now bears itself upright, and makes cool banks the pleasing rest invite, when springs the woodbind and the bramble rose, and where the sleepy cow's lip sheltered grows, whilst now a paler hue the foxglove takes, yet checkers still with red the dusky breaks, when scattered glowworms but in twilight fine show trivial beauties, watch their hour to shine. Whilst Salisbury stands the test of every light, in perfect charms and perfect virtue bright, when odors which declined repelling day, through the temperate air uninterrupted stray, when darkened groves their softest shadows wear, and falling waters we distinctly hear, when through the gloom more venerable shows some ancient fabric awful in repose, while sunburnt hills their swarthy looks conceal, and swelling haycocks thicken up the vale, when the loosed horse now, as his pasture leads, comes slowly grazing through the adjoining meads, whose stealing pace and lengthened shade we fear, till torn up forage in his teeth we hear. When nibbling sheep at large pursue their food, and unmolested kind, kine rechew the cud, when curlews cry beneath the village walls, and to her straggling brood the partridge calls, their short-lived jubilee the creatures keep, which but endures whilst tyrant man does sleep. When a sedate and content, when a sedate content the spirit feels, and no fierce light disturbs whilst it reveals, but silent musings urge the mind to seek something too high for syllables to speak, till the free soul to a composedness charmed, finding the elements of rage disarmed, or all below a solemn quiet groan, joys in the inferior world and thinks it like her own. In such a night let me abroad remain, till morning breaks and all's confused again. Our cares, our toils, our clamors are renewed, or pleasures, 
seldom reached, again pursued. And I'll read those last few lines again. Till the free soul to a composedness charmed, finding the elements of rage disarmed, o'er all below a solemn quiet groan, joys in the inferior world and thinks it like her own. In such a night let me abroad remain, till morning breaks and all's confused again. Our cares, our toils, our clamors are renewed, or pleasures seldom reached again pursued. Now I mentioned in the last episode that I was going through this book, the new Oxford book of 18th century verse, and that I was finding it fairly uninspiring, but uh, that is uh, something else. And, um, and it actually says here in the note that that poem was published in 1713. Uh, I'm not sure if that is when it was written, though. Um, and I was wondering what it was that we have about 800 pages of poetry in this book. I'm about 100 pages in, and nearly all of them have been written by men. Men, I assume, who lived in London in the same general uh, literary culture um, literary and news culture of the day. And I was trying to figure out why these gangs of men were not able to write rhymes uh, as good as these, or with the same feeling as these. Uh, but I don't know as much about Anne Finch as I might to hazard a guess, although I imagine that perhaps being a woman and being a poet, and from what I have been able to gather, not wanting to take that, uh, not wanting to take her poetry to the public for a very long time, that uh, she may have been isolated from the larger world of poetry, I don't know, and that that may have allowed her to develop in another way, but that is all a guess. The last poem I will read from tonight is one that I've been waiting to do, and this is from uh, Edmund Spencer. Now, let me get his dates. Mr. Spencer. His dates are, uh, they're guessing he was born in 1552 and he died in 1599. Um, and this comes from The Fairy Queen, the second part of which was published in 1596. So between 1590 and 1596, we have The Fairy Queen, another 800 pages of his poetry. And when I first picked up the Penguin Book of Renaissance Verse, 1509 to 1659, um, I was not expecting to enjoy Edmund Spencer, and I'm surprised at how much I did enjoy the excerpts from him that this book has. It's a strange language, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Penguin Book of Renaissance Verse does not modernize the spelling at all, so I may trip up here and there reading this bit from the Fairy Queen. Um, and I may trip up just because of his language. Now we think that this is, now I mean we know, this is about 200 years after Piers Plowman was written, 
and there is no way, I think, that I could read Piers Plowman here in the original and have anyone, including me, be able to follow it. And, uh, and I was wondering, is the difficulty of Spencer's language, does that have anything to do with, with his writing a kind of language that no one else was doing at the time? Was he writing the sort of uh, jewel-encrusted kind of uh, language that was dying? Um, was he like the last person to do this? And that's why his language is so strange and so difficult. And I was surprised to see, at least on his Wikipedia page, it says that um, he's basically credited with creating his own diction. Um, it says, since its inception four centuries ago, Spencer's diction has been scrutinized by scholars. And uh, despite the enthusiasm the poet and his work received, Spencer's experimental diction was largely condemned before it began to receive the acclaim that it now has today. Uh, 17th century philologists considered Spencer's use of obsolete language as the most vulgar accusation that is laid to his charge. And let's see. So uh, basically uh, intentionally archaic. And it says Samuel Johnson also commented critically on Spencer's diction with which he became intimately acquainted during the work he did on his dictionary, saying that he found it a useful source for obsolete and archaic words. Um, let's see. He relied much more, he relied on much more than just Middle English, and he's got allusions all over the place as well. So you'll see what he does with uh, this strange version of English that he has. And for some reason, I am still compelled to like it, um, although it seems to go against many of the things that I've been saying here. This, as far as I can tell, since it is just from, I believe it said, Book 3, Canto 6 of a 800-page poem, um, the part that I'll be reading from here is just the description of a, uh, of a garden. And I will leave it here uh, tonight. It says, let's see, this is uh, a part in the book where a character, where the character Venus is bringing uh, her lover Amaret. And she brought her to her joyous paradise where most she wons, and when she on earth does dwell, so fair a place as nature can devise whether in Paphos uh, or Cytherian Hill, or it in Gidnidnes be, I wot not well. But well I wot by trial that this same all other pleasant places doth excel, and called it by her lost lover's name, the Garden of Adonis, far renowned by fame. In that same garden all the goodly flowers, wherewith Dame Nature doth her beautify, and decks the garlands of her paramours are fetched. There is the first seminary of all things that are born to live and die according to their kinds. Long work it were here to account the endless progeny of all the weeds that bud and blossom there, but so much as doth need must needs be counted here. 
It sighted was in fruitful soil of old, and girt with two walls on either side, the one of iron, the other of bright gold, and none might thorough break nor overstride. And doubles, double gates it had, which opened wide, by which both in and out men moten pass, the one fair and fresh, the other old and dried. Old genius the porter of them was, old genius the which a double nature has. He letteth in, he letteth out to wend, all that to come into the world desire. A thousand thousand naked babes attend, about him day and night, which do require, that he with fleshly weeds would them attire, such as him list, such as eternal fate ordained hath. He clothed with sinful mire, and sendeth forth to live in mortal state, till they again return back by the hinder gate. After that they again return, returned been, they in the garden planted be again, and grow afresh as they had never seen, fleshly corruption, nor mortal pain. Some thousand years so doing they there remain, and then of him are clad with other hue, or sent into the changeful world again, till thither they return, where first they grew. So like a wheel around they run, from old to new. The needs there, gardener to set or sow, to plant or prune, for of their own accord all things, as they created were, do grow, and yet remember while well the mighty word, which first was spoken by the Almighty Lord, that bade them to increase and multiply. Ne'er does, ne'er do they need with water of the ford, or of the clouds to moisten their roots dry, for in themselves eternal moisture they imply. Infinite shapes of creatures there are bred, and uncouth forms which none yet ever knew, and as every sort is in the sundry bed, set by itself, and racked in comely rue, some fit for reasonable souls to endue, some made for beasts, some made for birds to wear, and all the fruitful spawn of fishes hue, and endless ranks along the enranged ware, that seemed the ocean could not contain them there. Daily they grow, and daily forth are sent into the world, it to replenish more. It is the stock not lessened nor spent, but still remains an everlasting store. As it at first created was of yore, for in the wild womb of the world there lies, in hateful darkness and in deep horror, and huge eternal chaos which supplies the substance of nature's fruitful progenies. All things from thence do their first being fetch, and borrow matter whereof they are made, which when as form and feature it does catch, become a body, and doth then invade the state of life out of the greasly shade. That substance is etern, and bideth so. Now when the life decays, and form does fade, doth it consume, and into nothing go. But changed it is, but changed it is, and often altered to and fro. The substance is not changed. I need to read it that way. 
That is how it is spelled. That's probably how it was pronounced then. The substance is not changed nor altered, but the only form and outward fashion, for every substance is conditioned to change her hue, and sundry forms to don meet for her temper and complexion, for forms are variable and decay by course of kind and by occasion, and that fair flower of beauty fades away, as doth the lily fresh before the sunny ray. Now that is 90 lines, three pages out of about uh, a thousand pages or so of uh, the Fairy Queen. Uh, that is not for everybody, and certainly no one is obliged to go through that much of that kind of poetry, but I think it's worth looking at, because it is interesting, and because we know at the same time, between 1590 and 1596, that Shakespeare was able to do so much with blank verse and with rhyme that was able to be heard on the stage and comprehended immediately, and could be entertaining in a way that what I just read definitely is not. But at the same time, you sort of have to admire uh, the uh, the perseverance and the inventiveness of somebody like Spencer to have uh, created a kind of poetry like that and to have just gone forward with it. As I said in another context uh, lately, writing a series of essays, uh, we need people like this. We need the weirdos and the eccentrics and the cranks the ones who can't even write a good play uh, to go up on the stage. Um, we need the, uh, the strange ones who are uh, sitting alone and almost creating uh, a new language and a new vision. And um, I'll leave it there tonight. Thank you for listening. Here are two more voices from history, and I should say that they are found one right after the other in an issue of Lapham's Quarterly, and I'll give a link to Lapham's Quarterly in the post description. As I've said, if we want a shortcut to voices from history uh, from all over the place, I know of no better place to look right now than uh, getting a subscription to Lapham's Quarterly. The first is Eudora Welty from her book, One Writer's Beginnings. And this might actually serve as uh, Eudora Welty's origin story. And this is what she has to say in part. My love for the alphabet, which endures, grew out of reciting it, but before that, out of seeing the letters on the page. In my own notebooks, before I could read them for myself, I fell in love with various winding, enchanted-looking initials drawn by Walter Crane at the heads of fairy tales. In Once Upon a Time and Oh had a rabbit, 
running it as a treadmill, his feet upon the flowers. When the day came years later for me to see the Book of Kells, all the wizardry of letter, initial, and word swept over me a thousand times over, and the illumination, the gold, seemed a part of the word's beauty and holiness that had been there from the start. And that's a miraculous thing that you associate the decoration of Once Upon a Time in a Children's Book, and later on you learn about the Book of Kells, that wonderful gospel book from Ireland, what, 8th, 7th, 8th, ninth century, and you suddenly see the same thing. That is how these connections are made. She says, learning stamps, learning stamps you with its moments. Childhood's learning is made up of moments. It isn't steady. It's a pulse. In a children's art class, we sat in a ring on kindergarten chairs and drew three daffodils that had just been picked out of the yard. And while I was drawing, my sharpened yellow pencil and the cup of the yellow daffodil gave off whiffs just alike. That the pencil doing the drawing should give off the same smell as the flower it drew seemed part of the art lesson, as shouldn't it be? Children, like animals, use all their senses to discover the world. Then artists come along and discover it the same way all over again, here and there. It's the same world. Or now and then we'll hear from an artist who's never lost it. In my sensory education, I include my physical awareness of the word, of a certain word, that is, the connection it has with what it stands for. At around age six, perhaps, I was standing by myself in our front yard, waiting for supper, just at that hour in a late summer day, when the sun is beginning, when the sun is already below the horizon, and the risen full moon in the visible sky stops being chalky and begins to take on light. There comes the moment, and I saw it then, when the moon goes from flat to round. For the first time, it met my eyes as a globe. The word moon came into my mouth, as though fed to me out of a silver spoon. Held in my mouth, the moon became a word. It had the roundness of a concord grape. Grandpa took off his vine and gave me to suck out of its skin and swallow whole back in Ohio. This love did not prevent me from living for years in foolish error about the moon. The new moon just appearing in the west was rising moon to me, was the rising moon to me. The new should be rising, and in early childhood the sun and moon, those opposite reigning powers, I just as easily assumed rose in east and west, respectively, in their opposite sides of the sky, and like partners in a reel they advanced. Sun from the east, moon from the west, crossed over, when I wasn't looking, and went down on the other side. My father couldn't have known I believed that when, bending behind me and guiding my shoulder, he positioned me at our telescope in the front yard and, with careful adjustment of the focus, 
brought the moon close to me. The night sky over my childhood, Jackson, was velvety black. I could see the full constellations in it and call their names. When I could read, I knew their myths. Though I was always waked for eclipses, and indeed carried to the window as an infant in arms and shown Helly's Comet in my sleep, and though I'd been taught at our dining room table about the solar system, and knew the earth revolved around the sun, and our moon around us, I never found out that the moon didn't come up in the west, until I was a writer, and Herschel Brickle, the literary critic, told me after I misplaced it in a story. He said valuable words to me about my new profession, quote, Always be sure you get your moon in the right part of the sky. And the little note about Eudora Welty from Lapham's Quarterly says this, Eudora Welty from One Writer's Beginnings. Welty was a prolific author who wrote mainly about the American South, winning a Pulitzer Prize in 1973 for her novella The Optimist's Daughter. From the age of 16 until her death at the age of 92, she continually returned to the same house that her family had built in Jackson, Mississippi. And from Mississippi to Alabama, this next uh, passage is from Helen Keller, The Story of My Life, and the date on it is 1887. This would have been when the events she is recounting took place. The most important day I remember in all my life is the one on which my teacher, Anne Mansfield Sullivan, came to me. I am filled with wonder when I consider the immeasurable con contrast between the two lives which it connects. It was the 3rd of March, 1887 three months before I was seven years old. On the afternoon of that eventful day, I stood on the porch, dumb, expectant. I guessed vaguely from my mother's signs and from the hurrying to and fro in the house that something unusual was about to happen. So I went to the door and waited on the steps. The afternoon sun penetrated the mass of honeysuckle that covered the porch and fell on my upturned face. My fingers lingered almost unconsciously on the familiar leaves and blossoms which had just come forth to greet the sweet southern spring. I did not know what the future held of marvel or surprise for me. Anger and bitterness had preyed upon me continually for weeks, and a deep languor had succeeded this passionate struggle. Have you ever been at sea in a dense fog, when it seemed as if a tangible white darkness shut you in, and the great ship, tense and anxious, groped her way toward the shore with plummet and sounding line, and you waited with beating heart for something to happen? I was like that ship. I was like that ship before my education began, only I was without compass or sounding line and had no way of knowing how near the harbor was. Light, give me light, 
was the wordless cry of my soul, and the light of love shone on me in that very hour. I felt approaching footsteps. I stretched out my hand as I supposed, I stretched out my hand as I supposed towards my mother. Someone took it, and I was caught up and held close in the arms of her who had come to reveal all things to me, and more than all things else, she was to love me. The morning after my teacher came, she led me into her room and gave me a doll. When I had played with it a little while, Miss Sullivan slowly spelled my hand into my hand the word D-O-L-L. I was at once interested in this finger play and tried to imitate it. When I finally succeeded in making the letters correctly, I was flushed with childish pleasure and pride. Running downstairs to my mother, I held up my hand and made the letters for doll. I did not know that I was spelling a word or even that words existed. I was simply making my fingers go in monkey-like imitation. In the days that followed, I learned to spell in this uncomprehending way a great many words, among them pin, hat, cup, and a few verbs like sit, stand, and walk. But my teacher had been with me several weeks before I understood that everything has a name. And again, just as an aside here, this is completely uh, captivating here, but I just wanted to say, um, just as with the episode I did on evolution and the ones I occasionally do just talking about language, looking at how Helen Keller describes how she learned language, how she learned to spell, how almost immediately she felt these signs in the palm of her hand from her teacher and immediately wanted to imitate them and was so proud of herself for having done so and only later learned that everything has a name. This cherishing of language, this gift that language and words are seen to be. Uh, I am reminded again of how cheapened and how destroyed language is uh, every day on the likes of social media or cable news and all the rest. I won't say any more because that is my thing. But uh, it's worth thinking about, especially in the context of, of what is being recounted here, how cheapened language is all around us every day, but how precious it is being recounted as here. Uh, one day, while I was playing with my new doll, Miss Sullivan put my big rag doll into my lap also and spelled D-O-L-L and tried to make me understand that D-O-L-L applied to both. Earlier in the day, we had had a tussle over the words M-U-G and W-A-T-E-R. Miss Sullivan had tried to impress upon me that M-U-G is mug and that W-A-T-E-R is water, but I persisted in confounding the two. In despair, she had dropped the subject for the time, only to renew it at the first opportunity. 
I became impatient at her repeated attempts, and, seizing the new doll, I dashed it upon the floor. I was keenly delighted when I felt the fragments of the broken doll at my feet. Neither sorrow nor regret nor regret followed my passionate outburst. I had not loved the doll. In the still, dark world in which I lived, there was no strong sentiment or tenderness. I felt my teacher sweep the fragments to one side of the hearth, and I had a sense of satisfaction that the cause of my discomfort was removed. Instead, she brought me my hat, and I knew I was going out into the warm sunshine. This thought, if a wordless sensation may be called a thought, made me hop and skip with pleasure. We walked down the path to the well house, attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. And here I remember, obviously, uh, or realize, she's still able to feel and to smell, and these senses must have been fairly intensified for her. Uh, someone was drawing water, and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water, first slowly, and then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I'll read that again a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy. It set it free. There were barriers still, it is true, but barriers that could in time be swept away. I left the well house eager to learn. Everything had a name, and each name gave birth to a new thought. As we returned to the house, every object which I touched seemed to quiver with life. That was because I saw everything with the strange new sight that had come to me. On entering the door, I remembered the doll I had broken. I felt my way to the hearth and picked up the pieces. I tried vainly to put them together. Then my eyes filled with tears, for I realized what I had done. And for the first time, at the age of seven, I felt repentance and sorrow. I learned a great many new words that day. I do not remember what they all were, but I do know that mother, father, sister, teacher were among them, words that were to make the world blossom for me, like Aaron's rod from the Bible with flowers. It would have been difficult to find a happier child than I was as I lay in my crib at the close of that eventful day and lived over the joys it had brought me and for the first time longed for a new day to come. Any comments 
or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.